everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You are listening to Lyle and... Lawson. With the double L team. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning? Oh, so many things. Firstly, I... Uh, Walking into the studio and getting met with a dairy-free, sugar-free chocolate muffin made by Shell Southwell, the best producer on earth. You know what was in it? What? Mayonnaise. Oh, really? <laughs> no. No. Uh, oh, okay. It was a joke. I was like... No, it's not a joke. Oh, wait, there is mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Okay, I'm like, Shell, what have you done to me? <laughs> it's over. Okay, it was veganaise. It was veganaise. Dude, imitation mayonnaise is the best. Oh, that's why it tasted so good. Yeah. Wait. Chocolate mayonnaise cake is like the best cake ever. Yeah, but it was really, really good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it didn't taste like mayonnaise. Of course it doesn't taste like mayonnaise. It tastes like chocolate and, uh-huh. and goodness. And sweetness. When you think about what goes into uh, mayonnaise, it's like all the ingredients that you'd normally put into a chocolate cake and it's already mixed together, so it just makes perfect sense to use mayonnaise to make a chocolate cake. That is genius. Who come up with this? Is that, um, co- is that a common thing? I think Shell's the only person I have ever met who makes a chocolate mayonnaise cake. Or in this case, a chocolate veganaise cake. Man, she's on it. Let's go. Yeah. Let's yeah. go. Well, what are you grateful for this morning? I'm grateful to be married to the greatest vegan cook on the planet, <laughs> just putting it out there. Um, and I get to, you know, go home to this person every day and to live with this person. And it's just, you know, when you're married to a gourmet cook, life is just good. I don't know, man. I get to go home to my rice cooker and soy sauce every day. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I get to go home of, to my toaster every day. If you run out of soy sauce, just um, use tomato sauce instead. Oh, what was wrong? Yikes. <laughs> you're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Lawson's got a funny grin on his face. Not sure what's going on right there? <laughs> me and me and producer Shell, we just like kind of communicate through the glass wall here. The sign language going on? Yeah, yeah. And then we just laugh at each other. Just, <laughs> just ridiculous things. <laughs> I don't oh. even want to know. But let's get into our quiz. <laughs> Good, you weren't invited. Uh- <laughs> cold, cold, ice cold. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Fantastic. Let's have some positively different news this morning. All right. So the positively different headlines this morning, we're just lighting up with stories about bees. I talked about bees yesterday. You I talked did. about my great love for bees yesterday. I talked about how... Yeah. Hey, you've moved to a new uh, a new house. Oh, yeah. Where there's a bit of land. Yeah. Are you going to get a beehive? Oh, I could definitely do that. Darren Pratt, who often comes here on Faith FM, he has a... I think it's Darren has a beehive. That is genius. That is so smart. Oh, uh, yeah. Lyle's just mentioning. So uh, that's okay, actually so- the one thing I haven't mentioned. Uh, like, you know, we've had good news. We've talked about cupcakes and big cow. I, I moved on the weekend and uh, bought lots of flat pack furniture and getting it done. And, but, yeah, I live with, like, area now. I live in the bush, bro. I could definitely have a beehive. That is so epic. I am so... Okay, this is... this is The gears are turning in my head. I'm like, man, we're going to put the beehive. Oh, there's the shed down the back. I could put it right beside the shed. You have can have more the- pets than anyone you know. 
<laughs> well, I was reading this story this morning coming from the United States, specifically from Pittsburgh International Airport, where they started having problems with bees, specifically because, you know, uh, usually around airports, there's all these big, you know, kind of unkept meadows and fields and whatnot. They usually put airports in places where there's not a lot of people. people yes. Um, because not and- everyone's like a plane spotter like I am. <laughs> yeah, no one like wants to constantly hear the roar of, you know, planes and jets and whatnot taking off every morning. I, I feel for the people. We have an airport here in Newcastle, the Newcastle airport that has a RAF base on it. I'm like, man, imagine living there and just hearing... Like, just every single morning. But anyways, uh, in these unkept meadows, they found that there are literally millions of bees. And they started to have problems when the bees, like, because a a bee colony, it builds up and builds up. And then a a group of those bees, they find a new queen and they split off and they go to make a new colony. And they could do it all in a a bundle. Yeah, they they all go away. So the bees started making their new nests on, like, Wings of retired planes. I got this photo oh, here. Oh no way! That is so epic. It's oh like wow! This, Look at that. This plane wing with like just two covered in two massive swarms of bees. Yeah. So essentially, they were like they were getting more and more bees, and they were like, "Oh, what's the solution to this problem?" Like, you don't want to kill bees. We pro- yeah, they were like, we probably shouldn't just go and kill the bees. You know, there's a lot of other pests and whatnot where it's like, all right, you know, these guys are a pest. They're just, nuke them. just get rid of them. But uh-huh. these cats. are bees. And they're like, okay, these Feral are a very... <laughs> just saying. Feral cats. Oh, dude. Dude, how good are bees, though? Bees are feral cats. Bees do amazing things. Bees have use bees to society. Bees are the best ever. I love bees. But anyway, so these bees, uh, they're, they're like, oh, man, we need to do something about this. And specifically, Ben Scherzer, who is a employee at the airport, he was like, oh, man, we need to do something about this. We need to sort out this problem. We need to. It would be really good if we could hire a beekeeper and essentially make uh, this huge bee habitat that we have around our airport a part of our you know, climate responsibility plan at the airport. Um, nothing really happened for a couple of years until there was an administrator who came along sympathetic enough to the cause who is now appointed resources. They've hired a master beekeeper named Steve Rapaski. And, uh, yeah, essentially they now look after and protect over 4 million bees, which is 110 colonies in 8,000 acres. So this has become like their new mascot for the airport. They have like yeah. a big bee on a sign somewhere out there. You know, Dude, the, if, the, they're, the if they're airport, not doing that then they've they just, need to they, they need to i mean they've they got more pets to. than anybody any other airport out there you and know? it's a flying animal as well most airports have you know like a bunch of little dogs that sort of run around and sniff your luggage but they've got bees they've got bees they've got literally these animals that are doing them way more than dogs are uh, dogs are sort of protected biosecurity yeah but is, you know protecting yeah, but, the bees yeah but bees make food <laughs> so this is true this is true <laughs> the dogs are nice they're cute they're like i like to Sort of see the little dogs running around. Yeah, and that's everything. true. Oh, and they're like. You just make your heart warm. When you've the, been on a flight for like 14 hours and you come off and there's a little. little, little especially. Have, have a little dog and he's just playing. He just thinks that's a, that's a game. Especially because like we don't have any illicit substances on us too. Yeah, like, that's yeah, right. We're, 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 we're safe. So we just that's get right. to hang out with the dogs. Uh-huh. There are some people who are, you know, feeling super stoked on the dogs, but. Um, yeah, those people aren't living their best life. That's right. That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. I have zero sympathy for them. If they do something dodgy, then... Um, okay, so I have another bee story coming from Australia. And, dude, this is the coolest thing ever. So, essentially, um, you know, among, like, uh, youth detention... Uh, 
what's the right word? Not detention centers. Youth, um, what would you call it? Juvenile, like jail, you know, these kinds of places where, you know, at-risk youth and youth who are getting in trouble um, end up. Uh, there has been this program created by a master beekeeper named Claire Moore. This is in Australia um, called Sweet Justice. And it's essentially a 10-week program that teaches uh, young men who are in these centres um, the fundamentals of commercial beekeeping and gives them the ability to be employed once they get out of there. So maybe you should go and do this, Lawson, so you can learn how yeah, to... Um, but there's like some criteria to get in, which is, <laughs> you know, to do something illegal. Um, but essentially, this is even going further. So it started out um, in the Malmesbury Youth Justice Centre as this 10-week program doing amazing things. And, and we've talked about here on radio before how the solution to at-risk youth is to put them to work, essentially, to teach them new skills. And, and this is a great thing grow. because beekeeping is... Uh, there's a little bit of science involved in it. I talk mm. to friends of mine who've got bees, and it's not the hardest thing in the world, but you do have to know what you're doing. I remember when I was a kid one time, we, um, you know, my dad got a, a beehive, brought some bees home, and they kind of lasted about a year, mm. and then some European wasps came in and just killed them all. <laughs> and Yikes. it was like, oh, that was rough, and we never became the world's best beekeepers. Well, we never actually went back to it again, uh, but I think it's a... I think it's a great little science to uh, to uh, to learn and to experiment with something you can you know teach to kids and show other people and people get to eat honey. It's just the best. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Freckos texted in to say that I have a flow hive. Oh, what does that mean? Honey straight from the hive to jars. Oh, that's epic. It says look up flow bee. So that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, just that's. Go and- just- Collect the jar and swap the jar over, I guess. I don't know. Oh, so it's like automatic. Like the bees just hang out in the little beekeeper beehive and then they make honey and then, yeah. I don't know. That's the other, am I allowed to keep bees as a vegan? I'm I'm kind of wondering now. I'm like... Well, it depends what, how you define vegan. Yeah. I guess like, I don't know. There's some parts of bees that I'm like, oh, I don't some people to... Some people call it bee spit. Oh, True. Because it but, is. I, I don't usually eat honey either because I'm not a big fan of it. Yeah, but I'm a big fan of bees. Just have bees. Yeah, I know. You don't have to collect the so honey if you cool. don't want to. Just let the bees eat the honey. But, like, if I be honest, okay, Lyle, one of my biggest phobias in life is, like, wasps. And, like, I love bees. <laughs> this might be a bit of a fail So, So it's like, this is the thing is that I love bees because of all the great things they do. I love seeing them around. But I'm, like, deathly afraid of wasps. And I'm, if I'm in close proximity with bees which are very similar to wasps. When I see them flying around, they have their stingers. I'm like, I don't know if I'll be living a comfortable life then. Right. So so my this plan to keep work. bees is getting quickly shut down this might not by work. my fears and phobias. But, um, yeah. yeah, let's get into... Let's get into some more serious stories. Yes. No, it's a more serious story. So the state of Arizona has been the first state in the United States to outlaw uh, transitioning treatments for... Any child under the age of 18, well, any child, I guess that's... Okay, yep, yep. Uh, this is a really good thing because, you know, we find that and it, there's this massive contrast in society where society has just become absolutely insane and ridiculous mm. and crazy where, you know, we let five-year-olds make a decision about their gender, which is a permanent decision which cannot, mm. you know, be reversed. Um, and research 
um, has found that somewhere between 70 and 95% of children who make a decision to trans- transition regret that later in life. So the best estimates are 70%, uh, but other uh, researchers are bringing back figures of 95%. Mm. And there's no other, you know, there's no other medical procedure out there that has that level of failure rate that has any level of approvement, approval at all. And so the Arkansas state government has gone, yeah, no way, there's no way. Not, no one under the age of 18 um, is going to be able to do this. It was vetoed by the governor, Asa, Asa Hutchinson, uh, vetoed it, but the uh, the House overrode him with a 71 to 24 decision, followed Oof. by the Senate at 25 to 8. Mm. So pretty much smashed it. Um, this is called House Bill 1570, 1570, um, Save Adolescents from Experimentation. Because what they've pointed mm. out is that the level of failure of these kinds of procedures has, you know, stated that at the very best, what we're doing is experimenting. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. At, at the yeah, very yeah. best case scenario, this is purely experimental. And so we shouldn't be engaging in experimental um, operations with children. Mm. Uh, particularly, you know, experimental operations that are going to be permanent. Um, <clears throat> now, the good thing about this is that they have stated that they hope this uh, opens up the way for treatment for for alternative um, treatments for people with gender dysphoria to be researched. And, of course, as human beings, we're very, very smart people. We are able to discover, you know, all kinds of new treatments to do amazing research, but we have never researched treatments on how to treat people who have gender dysphoria to maintain their birth gender. Yeah, yeah. We've only ever researched how to change their gender mm. to match what their mind says rather than looking at, okay, can we change the way that a person thinks so that they can actually accept their body. Um, the bill cited a total lack of evidence to show any benefit gained from transition. Oh, that's in- that's a... That's what the bill That's cites, Oof. and they, of course, all had all of the uh, the expert, you know, witnesses, testimonies, etc., to say that, and 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 research to show that there is no known or um, observable evidence to show that there's any benefit from transitioning. Mm. So you get people who are really struggling with mental illness, and okay, they do a transition, but there's nothing to show that that actually helps their mental illness. Yeah. And this is the tragedy of our, our society today. We accept mental illness rather than treating it. Mm. Um, and we need to have compassion. Um, there are another further 21 states that are look, looking to follow in the footsteps of Arkansas. Let's uh, hope and pray that uh, some of our states here in Australia will have the courage to stand up and shut down the ideology and to actually um, deal with this. One of the statements uh, was, finally lawmakers are standing up to radical activists who insist on experimental procedures for children, healthcare workers and academics have been shouted down or cancelled by powerful activists when they have raised concerns about the irreversible, unresearched and unscrutinised treatment being offered to children. These politicians have fulfilled their duty to ensure children are protected from such activism. Mm. Good statement right there. Of course, like... The, the point we're trying to make, like, the, it, there's no research that shows, there's no evidence to show that it's a good thing, is because after people transition, there's just so many 
problems that still exist. Yeah, that's right. And, and in a particular, like, when we look at America today, we're not seeing the same persecution of these kinds of people as before. Like, No, no, this doesn't come from bullying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you try and bully somebody who is trans, you're going to get really, really persecuted, and rightfully so. There's, there's no room for bullying, bullying whatsoever at all. We need to have compassion on people who are struggling with gender dysphoria. This 100%. needs to come from the mm. position of compassion, not from a position mm. of uh, of anything else. But and it, we need to find the best outcome and the best scenario for them. Yeah, well, because like the biggest thing that leads to mental health struggles that I've I've witnessed is is issues with identity. Like, yes. and and this exists yes. outside of the realm of. Like you know, um, transgenderism. Like this exists in when people are, you know lose purpose and are depressed and really struggle. And so, it, like when you have this this whole like trend being transgender is all about identity. Who am I? And and it, the the struggle is oh why aren't I what I want to be? Uh, and we're seeing that even when people do everything that they can to get as close as possible, it still doesn't make a change. And there's huge mental health issues in this community. And so, ultimately, like, and again, this is this is a free, like, a free will thing. The point that it's just making is that oh, like, yeah, it's experimental, and people of this age. This is a demographic. We're dealing with a demographic here, and if this triggers something, you know, give Lifeline a call or give us a call right here. But you're dealing with a demographic that. Um, that has a higher suicide rate than Jews who are being persecuted in the Warsaw Ghetto in the Second World War. Mm. You know, I mean, that's the highest level of bullying I think that any any demographic has ever received. Mm. And um, this is this these are people who are really seriously ill, and we need to recognise that and provide effective treatments. Mm. Anyway, I did talk say that I would mention the extreme weather. The research has now come through. Um, during the recent floods here in New South Wales, we received 81,900 gigalitres. So Sydney Harbour contains 500 gigalitres, so that's 160 Sydney Harbours of water just got dumped on New South rain. Wales. Uh, Kendall recorded 405 millimetres in one day. That's a lot of rain in one day. Um, has happened, you know, quite a number of times before at that level, but not as consistently and for as long a time or over as wide an area. Mm. Uh, Comboyne had just under one metre in the week of, of rain. Um, and so the in, in inland, um, even the Darling River, the Darling River catchment saw two of the three largest one-day increases since 1993. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, joining us on the phone this morning for interview of the day is Dr. John Anderson from Creation Ministries. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, thank you, Lyle, and good morning. Now, I understand that we're talking about DNA today, which is a subject that, yeah, it comes up from time to time because it truly is one of the most fascinating aspects of life here on this earth and one of the greatest revelations, really, of the creative power of God. Where will we start talking about DNA today? So many different places and aspects of this we could talk about. Where should we start today? 
Well, look, Lyle, it's been uh, something that's uh, fascinated me, of course, because uh, DNA or the molecular structure of it had uh, only recently been discovered when uh, I started university. So, uh, you know, I've been, I have been did a medical degree at uh, Melbourne University, and so uh, DNA has always been something uh, uh, fascinating to me. And uh, because the... Uh, uh, creationist speakers uh, often fo- focus on some of the uh, aspects that really interest them, like, like their uh, their background. DNA has been something that's uh, really fascinated me. So uh, in most of my talks, I tend to uh, look at it. But really, everybody's heard of uh, DNA, and uh, we often use expressions like, oh, you know, it's in my DNA or whatever. But not a lot of people realize exactly what it is. And what it is, of course, it's a, a biological software program. And uh, it's, although it's uh, organic chemical compounds, it is the most astonishing, and for human DNA anyway, huge software program that you could possibly imagine. And really, uh, as anybody involved in computers know, if you uh, any software program has to be written by an intelligent programmer. They never just uh, you know, write themselves. And uh, because of, well, DNA couldn't possibly have written itself. And so it's probably the, uh, the best example I use to show the impossibility of evolution. Because DNA is there in uh, every living organism, and of course it uh, it reaches its climax in uh, in uh, humanity. So really, that's why I find DNA so fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And could we compare it to even something as simple as, say, a book? Now, a book contains paper and it contains ink, which would be the equivalent of the you know the chemical compounds, I guess, within DNA. But then a book also contains information. Now, ink and paper is something that, you know, you can sort of create in various different ways, but information only comes from a mind. Is that is that what we're saying here? Would that be a fair well, comparison? That, that's, that's certainly true. And uh, when you uh, look at a book, it goes chapter by chapter by chapter, and you can read through uh, the whole of the book. But it's not repetitive it has uh, information on every page. You could write a book of uh, 200 pages and every sentence said the cat sat on the mat, the cat sat on the mat, the cat sat on the mat. But that wouldn't give you uh, any more information than the cat sat on the mat. But the whole book gives you a huge amount of information and the whole of our DNA program does exactly the same thing. It gives us a huge amount of information. The program itself determines whether you've got blue eyes or brown hair or fair skin or dark skin or whatever. You know, it's all written there and uh, it's been there right from the beginning. It's the program that formed us in the womb. It's the the program that uh, maintains us. And all we have to do is uh, add the fuel, which we do when we eat, of course. Okay, so how much actual information is required to form us as a person who we are? Right. Well, DNA is, the program is composed of uh, what we call uh, nucleotide bases or nucleic acids. And DNA is double strand. And in each of those strands, if we add it all up, 
we have uh, 3 billion letters. So uh, in total, we've got about 6 billion letters. Uh, it's a huge amount of information. But even within that information, uh, uh, humanity, uh, even the, uh, the, the best uh, genetic scientists, really don't know a huge amount about it. And I was reading an article uh, only uh, a year or so ago by one of the, the leading guys in Australia who said that we actually only understand about 2% of it. So 98% of our DNA, we still don't really understand. And the cell is just so amazing, it knows how to uh, to pick the bits and pieces that will do whatever it requires. And I often use the uh, comparison in talks uh, of perhaps a, uh, a robotized car factory. If you walked into a uh, robotized car factory, the largest on the planet, what you would see is all these robots go going here and there assembling uh, motor vehicles and you would know that uh, somewhere there's a control room with a whole bank of computers and uh, uh, software programs that run those computers and all powered by uh, electricity that generated uh, outside the, uh, the factory. But when you compare that uh, with our cells, which is uh, on a nanoscale, it's far more complex than that. It generates its own electricity and uh, it, it runs just like a, uh, a miniature city. It builds roads, uh, dissembles roads, builds factories. It does all sorts of things that are so amazingly sophisticated. And when you look at it, uh, you find it hard to imagine that uh, anybody could even conceive that it didn't emanate from a uh, an enormously intelligent source, and of course that source is our Creator God. He's not the uh, greatest intelligence in the universe. He's outside the universe, and he built it. So, really, uh, when you look at the cell and what it does, it really is just astonishing, and uh, it makes you wonder how people who are well aware of that, so like some of the uh, the better known atheists. Uh, cannot appreciate it, but they are blinded and they uh, they can't do so. It certainly leaves you in awe of uh, you know our Creator God who can create something or you know even begin to imagine something so incredibly complex that after you know six thousand years or four thousand years whatever of uh, science we have you know just managed to scratch the surface of it. And uh, as you say, we understand about 2% of it. That leaves a lot of research available for us to continue for a long time to come uh, into the future, doesn't it? It, it, it certainly does. And, of course, uh, when you think of, uh, say, the uh, the theory of evolution, which really uh, emanated mostly from Charles Darwin, uh, Darwin didn't know anything about even basic genetics, and uh, that hadn't been described at the time. And in the early days, uh, when people were just looking at uh, body tissues under a, uh, a light microscope, they knew that our organs had a, uh, a cellular structure, and there was this uh, little dot in the middle of uh, each cell called uh, a nucleus, but they really didn't have any idea uh, what was in it. And uh, I suppose it was easy for people to imagine that uh, somehow uh, life might have formed from uh, electric sparks in some sort of primordial soup and, uh, and then uh, life began. Uh, 
but really, you can see how absolutely impossible that is. And uh, a lot of the uh, the people who were supporters of evolution uh, point to a uh, fairly famous experiment called the Miller-Urey experiment, where under very contrived conditions, an electric spark was uh, passed through uh, some sort of organic soup, and uh, and and a few basic amino acids were formed. But of course, amino acids are not proteins, and the way we form proteins requires a, uh, a code for each individual amino acid, and they have to be linked up together, and we produce hundreds of thousands of these proteins. And uh, it would be, uh, as acknowledged by uh, many experts in the field, it would be just impossible by random chance to form even one of them. It simply uh, could not happen. And yet, you know, if you're an evolutionist, you have to believe that the uh, software program to do it wrote itself by trial and error over millions and billions of years. And really, that goes beyond the bounds of uh, credibility. Dr. John Anderson, you talk about six billion letters that, you know, make up who we are, that write the software that, you know, describes and, and, and creates who we are. And if you look at a, you know, a living, breathing, walking, talking human being, you see a very, very, you know, complex, um, organism right there. And it's sort of, well, I guess it's six billion is still a very, very big number, but you can imagine that there would be a lot of information to make that work. How far back does that information go in the history of that individual? I mean, if we go back to the moment of conception, how much of that information exists there at the point of conception? All of it. We get half of it from our mother and uh, half of it from our father. And uh, right at the moment of uh, conception, all of that information is there. And, uh, I mean, if you think of the plant world in a seed, all of the information to make the seed germinate and grow is in there. If you look at a fertilized external egg, all of that information is there to uh, make the chicken develop and then grow. And if you look at a, uh, a fertilized human egg cell internally, all of that information is there. And it uh, it builds us right from a, uh, a single fertilized cell all the way through, and then it maintains us all the way through our lives. And really, the the only reason why we wear out is because of the aging process, which, of course, is uh, a direct result of the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, Adam and Eve were created to be immortal, but because of the fall, sin entered in, and deterioration entered in. And that's why we deteriorate, that's why we age, that's why we get ill, all those sorts of things. So really, it is just amazing stuff, and the program was there right from the beginning. Yeah, so we could have kind of, you know, I could kind of imagine maybe six billion letters being in a uh, in a fully grown human being, but all six billion of them right there in that first uh, cell, you know, when it is created. You know, one of the things that fascinates me about creation is the extravagant variety that we have in all living things. You know, you're different from me, I'm different from you, my children are different from me, even though you can see similarities. There is so much variety. Every tree, every plant that grows is different. And sometimes it sort of seems to me that, you know, if evolution had come up with a successful model, why not just create the same thing over and over and over again? Why all of the variety that we have? 
Well, that shows you the magnificence of God. I mean, his uh, creativity means that he can do multiple billions of things, and they're all different. (laughs) Every snowflake is different. Absolutely everything that God has created, all organisms, we all have these slight differences. We have a lot of similarities because we're on the same basic plan. But we all have these differences, a bit like uh, fingerprints. Uh, Every fingerprint is different. Everybody's DNA is slightly different. Mine is uh, similar to my siblings, but it's not the same. And we all not only have differences in our DNA, we have uh, differences in our personalities. God is such a uh, God of incredible variety. And uh, if we can see this, uh, that amount of magnificence and variety in a fallen world, just imagine what it's going to be like in the, uh, the recreated world of eternity. It'll be just incredibly magnificent. Absolutely. And when I think about the differences that we have as human beings, it really does lend itself, you know, to the whole concept of having relationships, because if everyone was exactly the same, it would kind of make relationships, I feel a little bit meaningless, but God has written a program that recreates itself. And when it recreates itself, everybody's an individual, which makes relationships interesting, not just interesting, but, you know, it makes life worth living. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, some of them uh, are a little bit difficult because uh, uh, that's really because of uh, fallen humanity and the uh, the sin that dwells in us. But uh, but we are able to relate one to another magnificently. I often imagine what the original world would have been like before the fall. I believe that uh, God has did his whole creation as a uh, a symbiotic existence, everything dependent on everything else and all working in perfect harmony. And of course, when we look at nature now, we see evidence of that uh, symbiosis still. I mean, uh, we talk about uh, harmful viruses, but most of the viruses that uh, are within us are beneficial viruses. The same goes for bacteria. Most of the bacteria within us are beneficial bacteria. And it's only uh, really the corruption that the fall brought in that we find this pathogenesis uh, all around us. Otherwise, if it hadn't been for the fall, we would still be in this wonderful symbiotic existence. And we see remnants of it now, And, of course, it's going to be restored entirely in eternity. Dr. John Anderson, before you go, can you tell us a little bit about Creation Ministries that you work with and any upcoming programs that you might have? Right. Well, uh, Creation Ministries, Lyle, is an international organisation. Its Australian head office is in Brisbane, but we have speakers uh, right throughout the the country in uh, most of the major capitals and regional areas. And uh, uh, what we do predominantly, I suppose, Pose as we uh, we speak in churches on the creation evolution issue, uh, giving the evidences uh, for a, uh, a a young Earth and uh, against, of course, the uh, possibility of evolution. And uh, we on our website, which is creation dot com, uh, our listeners would be able to find all the information about uh, future speaking engagements, where they are, and they would be able to uh, access our library. Uh, predi- 
Creation.com is a wonderful website. It has a search window, and anybody who's got any questions in the uh, creation, evolution, or theological area can type their question into the uh, the search window, and it'll bring up a whole list of articles on that particular topic, and you can freely read them online or print them out, do whatever you like with them. It really is a most magnificent resource. Fantastic. Dr. John Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the show this morning and giving us that wonderful and encouraging message about the creative God that we serve. Thank you so much. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.